because of who we are. And so it's, it's a little bit tragic. What is the circumstances of this particular psalm, Psalm 51? Well, I think it was probably something like this. There was David, and he was lounging around in the afternoon while the soldiers were off, and they were out fighting a battle, and he decided to stay back. And, and the, the Scripture says that he walks out onto uh, his rooftop, and he's looking down, and he sees this woman. And he's captured by her in his imagination. She's beautiful. It's interesting because the Scripture says she's bathing. Now that seems a little weird to me, but that's what she's doing. She's bathing. So he watches her. And then he can't get her out of his mind. He can't get her off his thoughts. And so he decides to send someone to go and to to find out about who she is. You know, he can find someone he can trust to do that. He, he, it's very innocent. He's the king. He's just inquiring. And so he sends for, to find out about her. And a report comes back that her name is Bathsheba. And she's the daughter of Eliam. She's also the wife of Uriah. One of those soldiers that he had sent off to fight. Well, that settles the matter. That settles it. But as he tries, he still can't get her out of his mind. He couldn't stop thinking about her, or he wouldn't stop thinking about her. And so he sends for her. Because he had to gaze upon her beauty again. He had to see her up close and personal. And so why not? Why not just send for her and meet her? And so he did. Not long after that, the shocking words came back to him. I'm pregnant. What's he going to do? How's he going to fix this? Is there any way to just undo it? To change it? No. So he has to figure out a way to cover his track. An idea comes upon him and he thinks, well, I'll just send for her husband Uriah. So he sends a note to Job. He asks for Uriah to come back. He sets him up to where he would be, you know, hey, welcome home. Let's dine together. Why don't you go visit your wife now? Uriah refuses. So again, he tries it again the next day. And and this time he gets him a little more drinking than normal. And he tries to send him away, but he doesn't go. He just sleeps on the couch. He had honor. Honor that we don't see in David at this point. And so David is is caught with the question, what am I going to do? There's only one thing I can do. And so he writes a letter. Think of it just for a moment. He writes a letter to Joab, his commander, and he writes in there, send the troops to the front in the heaviest battle point. Stick your eye in the front and then pull back that he may die. What's interesting is that he seals the letter, he hands it to Uriah to take to the front. 
Not long after that, when Bathsheba heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented and she mourned over him for a period. And then after the mourning time was over, David sent for her and she became his wife and she bore him a son. I want you to think about that just for a moment. Nine months pass. God was not pleased. So he sent a prophet, Nathan, to him. And and Nathan says to him this, There were two men in the city, uh, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had huge flocks of sheep, herds of cattle. The poor man had nothing but one little female lamb which he brought in and raised as his own. It grew up with him. It grew up with his family, his children, and they loved him. And it ate off his plate, and it drank from his cup, and it slept on his bed. It was like a child to him. And one day, a traveler dropped in on the rich man, but the rich man was too stingy to take an animal for his, from his own herds or flocks to make a meal for the visitor. So he took the poor man's lamb, And he prepared a meal and set it before his guest. As David heard these words, anger grew in his heart and in his mind. And he lashed out, surely as God lives, the man who did this must die. He must repay for the lamb four times over for his madness. Nathan just looks at him, probably in my mind, and I envision this, with compassion and tenderness in his eyes. And he says, you are that man. David, stricken with guilt, replied, I have sinned against the Lord. Not long after that, he writes the words of Psalm 51. Would you look at the text with me? Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let my bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. For ye will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. 
Do good in Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight and write sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we come to this text and this story and the scripture and we cannot help but be moved. Moved at the fall of a great man. Wounded to know that our hearts are not unlike David's. And so, Father, may Your Word penetrate our hearts. And may we hear it. And may we not close our ears and our minds and our eyes to it, but live it out in the power of Your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The word that I used as a title for the sermon this morning is guilt. Again, this is the fourth uh, of David's Psalms of Penitence and probably his most famous. It comes in what we know to be his greatest moment as a follower, or his gravest moment as a follower of God. He is brought to see the darkness of his own heart, the greatness of his own sin and guilt before his God, Yahweh. Sadly, though, it is not something that any of us are innocent of. Even though the gospel teaches us that the power of sin has been broken by the work of Christ, the presence of sin remains. And while we may not have committed these particular sins, our particular sin and sins leave us with guilt in the same way David's did. And so the question before us as we come to this text is, what can be done about it? What can be done about our guilt and sin? Today we're going to look behind the scenes of, of David's heart. We're going to peer there and we're going to see the marvelous reach of God and salvation of dealing with our guilt which comes through our sin. Our thesis today is very simple, and it's this. God's grace is greater than our guilt and sin. Let me say that again so we'll hear it and let it resonate in our hearts as we unpack this, this passage. God's grace is greater than our guilt and sin. So let's walk through the psalm and let's see the steps unfold before us that we too may walk in this way. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is this. The appeal for mercy in the plea of grace. The appeal for mercy in the plea of grace in verse 1. David says, if you look at the text, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, notice the circumstances here. You have the king, the king who had served and who had saved Israel from Goliath, the king who had ruled well, the king who had walked with God and he had written already many psalms of praise. People, you know, you can imagine, people are singing his psalms. People are singing praises to God because of the things he's written. It is a king, or he was a king, of whom it was said, 
He is a man after God's own heart. And who said that? God did. God said, this is a man after my own heart. Yet he had sinned. And was now in desperate need. Now notice as David comes in this way, that he is, he is making no attempt to lessen his offenses. He does not offer, offer any resistance in terms of defense. He does not make himself out to be a victim of past circumstances. He's not claiming autonomy here. He does not try to minimize his sin. He does not plead any of his past obedience. No, he comes recognizing that he must rely completely and wholly on the steadfast love and mercy of God. So the portrait that we see here is, is one that we act, that commentators, almost every commentator I read about this passage points to this. They say, well, as you're looking at this, as you're thinking about David coming to God for mercy, think prodigal son. Think prodigal son. It's a reflection of this passage. The parable of Jesus told in the New Testament there. Perhaps you might have seen Rembrandt's painting of this passage, the prodigal son. It's called the return of the prodigal son. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It depicts the son who had spent his inheritance and, and to get that inheritance, he had totally offended his father. It was like he had slapped his father and said, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. And he took it and he spent it on wild living. And he ended up not just in the gutter, but in the pigsty. And now he's returned and he's kneeling there before his father. And in the painting, he has, if you look at the painting, one shoe is off his foot. The other shoe is like torn. The heel is completely torn off. So he only has one whole shoe. His, his, his garments are tattered and faded and, and, and worn. He's filthy. His hair has been shaved from his head, probably from, from the, the, the bugs and stuff that were in his hair. He had to just shave his head because he's living in a pigsty. And his father and others, in contrast to what he looks like in the painting, are, are, are all dressed in the best that the times have to offer. And so here is a picture before us of, of human degradation and loss. And yet, Rembrandt, as does the parable, pictures the father lovingly bending over his son despite the fill, despite the great rebellion and his desiring and squandering of his inheritance. He holds his son close. The wayward son has come home. He is on his knees and is embraced in the only place he has to turn for love and mercy. His eyes are closed and he's nestled in the bosom of his father. And the grace of his love. So I ask you a question this morning as you consider this. The first step in dealing with guilt is to recognize that in God there is mercy. Do you believe that? 
There is free, unmerited favor. There is also love. It is unchanging love based on His covenant commitment to those who are His. He says, I will love you. You will be my people. And I will be your God. And here there is compassion. Surging, passionate love toward the people that He loves. And so David's psalm begs us, don't run, don't hide, don't defend, don't blame, don't defect, but come. Come into the arms of the Father through Jesus Christ the Son and receive mercy. There is nowhere else to go. It is only here that you will find love and forgiveness. So the next step in dealing with guilt, after looking at the Father and realizing that there is the place of mercy and there is the place of love, the next step in the process that He takes us in this psalm is the acknowledgement of sin in the plea of grace. The acknowledgement of sin and the plea of grace. For David to receive the mercy he desired, he first had to see his sin for what it was. Now, it's easy for us to minimize sin. uh, To write it off. To consider it no big deal. uh, To just not think about it. On the other hand, sin is so pervasive, so common, that we may put it in the category of my sin. It's not even close to their sin. Some of us here may be going, I'm glad they're here. They need to hear this. That's not the point of the psalm. The psalm over and over and over again is in the first person singular. I, 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 mine, mine, mine. So that's what the psalmist would have us look at and see. Sin itself is interestingly alluring. It often comes wrapped in a beautiful package, doesn't it? That was the package of of David's sin. It was the package of Eve's sin. The original sin. It seems harmless. Even attractive. It can grip our hearts and be carried out without much thought or even consequence. A look here. A word about someone there. Just a little skim off the top. It really is just fine. It's no big deal. No one really cares, right? But God, God demands that we see what the theologians have called the sinfulness of sin. You see, sin is destructive. It is damaging. It is hurtful. It is shameful. It is demoralizing. It is ugly. It is a disaster that can utterly ruin our lives. Just in this one small glimpse of David's life, we see the horrible ramifications of sin. So we are called here to see it for what it is. And David helps us to do just that. He uses several biblical words here to give us a holistic awareness and understanding of sin. So, So pay attention to these words. You'll find them in the text. First of all, he uses the word transgression. He used that several times in the passage. Transgression means to stray across the boundary. To to, uh, invade forbidden territory. 
And so what this pictures for us then is a willing, knowledgeable, rebellious, stepping over God's boundaries that He has established. To transgress is to choose to intentionally disobey. Transgression is willful trespassing. It is presumption. It is a stubborn willfulness against God. It is saying, you are not going to tell me what to do. Because I'm the king of my world. That's what transgression is. And David was saying, I, as king, wanted to do it my way. And it had nothing to do with burgers, right? Secondly, he uses the word iniquity. This word captures the nature of sin. It is not just that I do wrong things, say wrong things, but that I am wrong. It suggests a a perversiveness or inner twistedness in our hearts. Look at verse 5. He points to it this way. Behold, I was born, brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So that's how he drives this word iniquity. He wants us to see that it's a twistedness within ourselves that we're born with. Kidner notes this crime, in this crime, David sees it was no freak event. It was in character, an extreme expression of the warped creature he had always been and of the faulty stock he sprung from. Now note, he's not blaming his mother here. He's not excusing himself. But what he's doing is he's seeing that his sins are his own and inexcusable. Worse of all, they are the very element he lives in. The point here that David is making is that he needed saving because of who he was, not just because of what he did. And so do we. You see, there's an aspect of sin that is, I am born in sin, and there's an aspect to where I am a sinner as I do sins. That's the biblical aspect that we see here. I transgress, I go up across his lines, I, I, am, I, I have iniquity in my heart. I'm born this way, so to speak. The third word that we see here is sin. And it may be the most familiar to us, and it means a falling short of God's standard or, or missing the target that God set. Most of us know this. We know this definition, but let's dig a little deeper here. I want you to see it for what he's really speaking of here. It's what it is. It's like a bowman. A bowman that has uh, the best aim in, in, in his village. He has the best skill. He has the best power. And yet, every time he misses the target. That's what David wants us to see here. In other words, I can't do the right thing no matter how hard I try. It's a total inability. I am unable to live up to God's standard on my own. I can't do this apart from His rescue. That's what David is admitting to here. He also uses another word to describe sin here, and that is the word in verse 4, evil. Evil. This simply refers to the ugly, repulsive nature of sin against God. 
It comes from a root that means to spoil or to break into pieces. And so what he wants us to see here is sin is just plain evil. It destroys. It's awful. Finally, David gives us the last glimpse that we'll look at here. David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Now what does this mean? What what is he talking about here? What he's saying is, is that sin is sin because it's Godward in its orientation. That's why there is sin because of God. Because of His holiness, He sets the standard. Therefore, continuing in verse 4, God is justified in His words and blameless in His judgment. So in other words, when God says sin is sin, it is sin. Because He is the one who declares it to be such. Now again, understand, David is not minimizing for a moment the sin he has committed against Bathsheba here, or Uriah. The fact that he sinned against them is not in doubt. He's not just leaving that out. But what David does for us here is he points to the reality that his adultery, that his murder, are not simply horizontal dimensions. Ultimately, sin always goes back to the Creator. It's against His character. It's against His holiness. He is our infinitely holy Creator God, and that is ultimately who we sin against when we sin. In this psalm, what David is doing is he is is facing the reality of himself. He is looking in a mirror at his heart. Nathan has confronted him, and he's looking at that mirror, and he's realizing, this is who I am. He is acknowledging all the gross, perverted, twisted dimensions of his heart that are corrupted by sin. He is confessing. He is repenting. He is crying out for mercy. And he is saying to us, look. Look at your own hearts as well. Do you see your sin? Do you understand the depth of your sin? Can you fathom the greatness of your sin? Do you realize the weight of your sin before an infinitely holy Creator God? Now understand this. To get to the bottom of the definition of sin that David paints for us, we must not, as, as Jerry Bridges says, become so preoccupied with some of the major sins that we lose sight of the subtle sins to deal with our own more redefined subtle sins. In other words, what Jerry Bridges is telling us is, is that lots of times we want to go off into the adulteries, into the, into the murder, into those big sins and say, well, that's not me, I guess I'm good. And what Jerry tells us is, is as we go into the Bible, we are to let the Word of God reflect to us what sin is and to recognize it for what it is. In his book, Respectable Sins, he points out that all sin, no matter how subtle it may seem to us, is malignant. Some we commit without really thinking about them, either at that time or afterward. We often live in unconscious denial of our acceptable sins, but even these sins are an assault 
on the majesty and sovereign rule of God. It is indeed cosmic treason, he says. In his book, Respectable Sins, he lists some sins. I'll give you just a sample, and I want you to think about these. Let these ruminate in your mind. Think about them. Do you have discontentment? When you gaze upon the pages of Facebook and see everybody's picture traveling all over the world, eating all that good food, and you're stuck at home, are you discontent? Are you unthankful? One of the things that you see over and over and over again in the New Testament is thankfulness to God. Thankfulness, thankfulness, thankfulness. Do you thank God? And I'm not talking about just at mealtime. What about pride? What about selfishness? You know the child is at the birthday party and sees all those other presents, sees the presents of the birthday queen sitting there and wants them. Are you selfish? Do you have a lack of self-control? Are you impatient? It's one of mine right there. Traffic, I hate it. There's a lot of things I can deal with in my life, but traffic annoys me to no end. I get so impatient. I sit there sometimes thinking, Lord, I'm spending my life sitting at a red light. Irritability, anger, gluttony. Let's not talk about that one, okay? Gluttony, no gluttony. Judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, sins of the tongue. Just to name a few. So again, what David is saying to us here is, is do you see your sin? Do you see your sin? Do you know the depth of your sin? Can you fathom the greatness of your sin? Do you realize the weight of your sin before the infinitely holy Creator God? Let me ask you. This week, as you think about the sermon, as you go back to it, maybe go back into this psalm and read it again and again and again. Maybe go into other passages wherever you're reading in your yearly Bible reading. Let God unmask you and show you who you are. Let His Word be a mirror. Will you confess? Will you repent as you are unmasked? You know, Martin Luther said he started the first of the 95 Thesis. The Christian life is a daily walk of repentance. We are called to live in repentance daily. Will you turn to, to God? Will you turn to Him? For His grace is greater than our guilt and sin. I want you to understand this, that even as, as, as Nathan comes to David and he totally unmasks him using that parable, it should make us weep. Why? Because it shows that God really loved David. The unmasking is a grace. It's the grace of God. It's the wonder of God. He's not slapping David across the face and preparing him for hell there. He's shaking him up and saying, will you see that you need me? 
Finally, let's look at the final step. First of all, we come into His presence because there's nowhere else to go. He's full of mercy. He's full of love. As we come into His presence, He reveals His Word to us and He shows us all the things of our heart. He shows us the things we do. How do we know what sin is? By He, he tells us in His Word. It's, it's really that simple. As, a, as a, a, youth friend of, a youth pastor friend of mine way back in the day used to say, it's, I'm telling you it's simple, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's easy. It's hard to do these things. It's hard to be honest with ourselves. One of my prayers, and maybe it should be one of your prayers, is this. Lord, help me see my unseen sin. Because sometimes we just don't see it. And there are times when God will open up that Word and He'll, He'll, He'll show us through someone or through some situation our own hearts as we struggle that we've never seen before. So ask Him to do that. But also bring your pet sins to Him. The ones that you struggle with that you can't seem to ever get over. Come to Him and confess those. And repent. Hear me? Repent. What does repent mean? It means turn the other way. You may have to do that, but repent. So this final step is the glorious one. As we do those things, the, the, the final step is the restoration from sin in the plea of grace. The restoration of sin in the plea of grace. And we see this really in, we're focusing on seven verses 7 through the end of the passage there. But you almost go back to 1 and 2 as well. When it comes to guilt, we don't need Jesus' forgiveness to help us to deal with our guilty feelings only. We also need Him to deal with the actual guilt that is ours. Not just our sins, but our very sinful selves, our nature. And He does this. So look at the text in verses 1 and 2. What does He say? Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. What does he say? Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Jump to verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, and renew a right spirit within me. Look at what he's asking for here. This is amazing. He's already appealed for mercy under the covenant love and compassion for God, for forgiveness and cleansing from sin, but he goes further. He is wanting God to deal with the sin, to blot it out from his memory, to grant him forgiveness, to wash him from his iniquity. He speaks of himself as if he were a filthy garment that needs to be scrubbed by the living God. You know how ladies back in the day, you didn't throw clothes in a washing machine. You had this washing board and you scrubbed it, right? That's what he's asking. He's asking to be scrubbed here. And then he says, cleanse me from my sin and purge me with his. This is language of the Old Testament law. Hyssop was a sprinkling instrument affecting the propitiation or appeasement of divine wrath. So it was to take away divine wrath. It ended um, exclusion and alienation. It purified them from defilement. We see this in Exodus. We see this in Leviticus. We see this in Numbers. So it's the language of the law. 
He is speaking here about his desire for forgiveness. His desire, now listen to me, for moral transformation. He wants to be transformed. His desire is for total cleansing. If we put it in, in a maybe a vernacular word, what he wants is, is he wants to be descend. He wants it taken away. Why is this? Because he knows his God. And I can, ima- can, you ima- I can imagine for nine months, for n- these nine months that he's, he's carried this with him, he, he's gone into the temple to worship God and it's just nothing. Nothing. But here he's brought to his senses and he knows his God. And what does he know about his God? That his God is holy, holy, holy holy, that He's pure. And He knows that God expects us, His people, to reflect His image. That's why Jesus tells us, be holy as my Father in heaven is holy. And so David prays that He would be whiter than snow, that He would be made to hear joy and gladness, that His broken bones, and that's what He, that's what he feels like, His bones are broken, He's been aching, He's been wounded, He's hurt, that His bones, broken bones would rejoice. He prays for God to hide His face from His sins and to blot out, blot out that iniquity. What he wants is for God to deal with his guilt and the power of sin in his life. He is in desperate need. The question, though, is where does that come from? Where does that kind of transformation come from? Where does that cleansing come from? David rightly senses God's concern for inner loyalty as a prerequisite for the presentation of animal sacrifice. God is happy to receive our sacrifices, but if those sacrifices are brought with a broken heart and a contrite heart and spirit, these God will not despise. And yet, hear me out here, Hear me out. A broken spirit and a contrite heart will not atone for sin. Because God is a holy God, He can't just look over it. He cannot just let sin go. He cannot pronounce, it's all good, no worries, mate. He can't do that. It appears here that even David knows that there is no sacrifice that will suffice as we see in verse 16. However, he is confident that the Lord knows of such a sacrifice. Where may we be forgiven? Where may we be transformed and totally cleansed and descend? How can our transgressions and our iniquities be blotted out? How can we become whiter than snow and be given clean hearts? Last night when I was working on a sermon and I was trying to figure out an ending and how I wanted to go with this, the song just kept popping up in my mind. Um, 
New City Fellowship version of the song that Wes King did years ago, just on guitar. His voice, tenor voice singing out. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me of its guilt and power. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal and respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Foul to the fountain, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The place that we go is Jesus. The place we go is the cross. The only place where stain can be washed away is at the foot of the cross by the blood of Jesus. Years ago when we went to, uh, we had an RYM camp in that year. Um, I love the t-shirt, mine's ratty now, but that year that we went, there was just a t-shirt and it had stained written across it. Stained. And it's the theme, isn't it? We've been stained with sin. Right? We've been stained with sin. And what Jesus says is, is, come and be stained by my blood and you'll be whiter than snow. Come to Him. All we have is our sin. And that necessitates our need for forgiveness and salvation. So come. Brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter how weighty our guilt and sin is, God's grace is greater than our guilt and sin in Christ Jesus. So come, let's pray.